the book of Exodus, chapter 2, second book of the Bible, second chapter of the book. I don't usually um, do themed messages on Mother's Day or focus on a mom of the Bible. It's not really intentional. It's just kind of how it's gone. But this year, the uh, Spirit really stirred me to lead us in a study on Jochebed. She is one of the, I think, more fascinating women in the Bible because she has a faith that is powerful and gutsy and because the Lord rewarded her faith in in spectacular ways. But even though it's Mother's Day and some of the men are handling all the children's classes today, this study is for everybody. This study is for women, it's for men, it's for teenagers because we're going to see in this study this morning a spiritual principle that is so vitally important for us to accept and for us to surrender to, but then also to act on with with joy and anticipation for what the Lord's going to do in response. Now, hopefully you know the setting of Exodus, but if you don't, that's fine. Let me just set it up real quick. Uh, In chapter 1, we see that Israel has been in slavery in Egypt. It's been almost 400 years. Joseph and his family have all died, and there has been really no one, uh, as Joseph and his family have kind of passed away, there's been nobody to advocate for the Jews. So their bondage and their slavery in Egypt has gotten more intense. Now, it's important to notice that the people never, during that 400 years, cried out to the Lord. They never sought his help. And it wasn't until the end of chapter 2, which is going to be after the passage we're reading, when they finally asked the Lord to intervene, and if you look at chapter 2, verse 24, you see that as soon as they did that, it says God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and immediately he puts his plan of deliverance into motion. Now, God hadn't forgotten about Israel in any way, shape, or form, but there's a parallel here between 400 years of slavery and not crying out to the Lord, and 400 years between the end of the Old Testament and when Christ arrives. So there's a parallel between the two. There's going to be salvation on both sides of that 400 years. But but for four centuries, the people don't ask the Lord for help. Why? We don't know. But as soon as they do, God acts. And part of God's plan that he already had in place was that there would be a deliverer. There would be somebody that would carry them out. And that man's name was Moses. But before the people cried out, Moses had to be born. And that's what happens here at the start of chapter 2. His mother, Jochebed, had a very important role in him being able to lead the people out. Let's look at it. We're just going to read 10 verses this morning, starting chapter 2 and verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. In other words, they were from the same tribe. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a wicker basket and covered it over with tar and pitch. Then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile with her maidens walking alongside the Nile. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid, and she brought it to her. When she opened it and saw the child, and behold, the boy was crying, she had pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Love Miriam, should I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? 
Pharaoh's daughter said, go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him, and the child grew and brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses because she said, because I drew him out of the water. One of the first details we see about Jochebed here from the text is that she was a Levite. The Levites were the tribe of Israel that the Lord had chosen to provide all the priests. So she was a a child of the priestly tribe. She also was obviously a woman who clearly knew the Lord, clearly trusted the Lord. We'll develop that. So if, if she has that background and she loves the Lord and she's being honored by the Lord, then why does she have to go to this extent? Why does she have these problems to start with? How many know that just because you and I go to church and serve in ministry doesn't mean we're not going to have problems? It doesn't mean we're not going to feel the weight and the frustration of those problems. And as we studied last week in talking about some of the ways that the enemy taunts us and tempts us, that the enemy uses this, and it's what I call the privilege lie. It's the lie that he says that if you're serving the Lord, he should make your life exempt from difficulty. And when God allows difficulty, or God even brings about difficulty to refine us, the devil then twists the privilege lie, and he says, wow, he must really not love you, because not only has he allowed you to go through it, but now you're having to to endure something that shouldn't happen to somebody who knows the Lord. But the Lord actually tells us that the more we love him, and the more we live for him, the more we're going to be open to criticism, the more we're going to be open to opposition and spiritual warfare and weariness. So the second half of the lie that the devil says is, then why serve the Lord? If that's going to happen, if God's not going to exempt you from difficulty, because for some reason you're being faithful to him and you're trusting him, but he's allowing it still to happen, then then why is it worth it to to serve him? Jacobed wasn't a novice. She was a Levite. She was married to a Levite. She knew the drill. She knew what what that came with. But at that point in her life, chapter 2, verse 1, it doesn't help much because Israel's in bondage. And the difficulty and the hardship of their situation had been ramped up because Pharaoh was nervous that the Israelites were growing too strong and too big. So he, he increases their labor. He doesn't give them any straw for the bricks. He makes life as difficult as it possibly could be. And if that isn't enough, he gets real nervous about the population growing. So he says, let's exterminate the Jewish race slowly. Whenever a boy is born, you midwives, you put that baby to death. Kind of a post-labor abortion. You, you, when, that, when that baby's there, as soon as it comes out, you kill it. Now the midwives didn't serve Egypt, they served the Lord. So they started to let the babies just live. And when Pharaoh came back and said, why aren't you putting the baby's death? They're like, these Hebrew women are amazing. They give birth before we can even get there. All of them. It's unreal. Like, we hear that they're in labor, and we go running over, and by the time we get there, the baby's already born. What can we do, Pharaoh? I mean, you know, you can't stop them. These women are unbelievable. Pharaoh doesn't buy it. So he tells the whole nation of Israel, you see a baby boy, you see a Jewish baby boy, you put it to death. 
So now the whole nation of Egypt is a hit squad. Now, Jochebed has a serious dilemma if you look back at the text, because she's pregnant. And when the baby is born, it's a boy. Now what? She obviously values life, so she isn't going to allow the baby to be killed. And she has faith, so she's not going to just give up and resign herself to her fate. She's not passive or indifferent, just balled up in a corner saying, I don't know what to do. She's not going to just take her chances. Instead, she comes up with a plan that will give the child an opportunity to live. And and she's going to trust the Lord to somehow provide. She can't see it yet, but she's going to trust the Lord to provide. And by faith, she knows in her heart that God is going to come up with an answer that she can't see, which is the very definition of faith, according to Hebrews 11.1. So Jochebed doesn't just give up, resign herself, say it's done, I don't know what to do, I might as well just kill the baby myself because because Pharaoh's going to get him anyway. How many times do we kind of live in that kind of, well, I don't know what to do, I'm just going to just accept it as it comes, rather than having an aggressive faith that says, God, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm going to trust you. So her plan, look at it. She carefully prepares a wicker basket and she covers it with tar and pitch. What a reminder of the ark, right? And it's waterproof, and she carefully places it in the reeds at the edge of the Nile. Now, there are a number of of significant risks to this decision. By placing the baby in the Nile, first of all, he could easily get eaten. The Nile has very famous crocodiles. They can be up to 20 feet long and 1,500 pounds. The Nile also has what are called monitors. You know what monitors are? Big, giant, nasty, ugly lizards. The monitors in the Nile can grow up to seven feet long, and they can seriously harm people, so a baby would have no defense. As if the crocodiles and the monitors weren't enough, there are ten types of venomous snakes living in and around the Nile. And if the basket somehow tips and gets by the crocodiles and the monitors and the snakes, there are two very aggressive and, and deadly fish in the Nile, the African tigerfish, which is called the African piranha, and the African knifefish, which is like an electric eel. So there's all kinds of danger fraught with this. The baby is at great risk of being eaten. Or, second problem, he could drown. He's only three months old, so obviously he can't do the freestyle. So if the basket tips over, he's going to die. Or if the basket goes out of the reeds and gets pushed down the river, he's going to die of exposure and of hunger and thirst. Problem three is that he could be discovered. And if he's discovered by a Jew... They're in such fear of what Pharaoh's doing, they're probably going to drown him themselves just so they won't be complicit. If he's discovered by an Egyptian, they're supposed to kill all Jewish baby boys, so they're almost certainly going to do that, because if they don't, they're going to face reprisal. So when you look at this, there's pretty much no solution. In fact, the only realistic way this child can live according to this plan is for someone who has the leverage and the power to somehow find the baby and show mercy on him and then be able to usurp and overlook the law. Now, in my mind, there are only two people that fit that description, Pharaoh's wife and Pharaoh's daughter. Everybody else is going to do something harmful to that baby, but we're going to see how the Lord works because nothing's impossible with God, right? 
But before we do that, I want you to really now, you may even want to close your eyes, really try to feel what this mother felt. As she's preparing that basket and the baby's laying there cooing and he's three months old and he's starting to show some responsiveness and she's putting tar on that basket knowing what's going to happen. What, what emotions are coursing through her at that point? Really now, come on, put everything else aside. Really get inside her head. That feeling of utter helplessness that she can't hide this baby boy any longer because the whole country is looking for Jewish boys. That fear of being discovered, which was driving her to consider any and all options to save her son's life, constantly evaluating to what extent she would go to sacrifice herself. The guilt as little Miriam came up, Mommy, what are you doing? What's, what's up with the baby? Why, why are you doing that to the basket? As she's trying to, to think through the plan and execute the plan. The anger and resentment that had to be there of being in Egypt and being in slavery and not being able to just raise her baby boy and her children in the way that she wanted to. The agony of staying awake night after night after night hoping the baby's cries didn't echo through the town and that someone would come and say, is that a baby boy? As she thinks and prays and pleads with the Lord. Lord, I need an answer. Any answer out of this mess. Ever been in that place? Maybe that describes you this morning. And listen, there is absolutely no shame in not having answers and feeling helpless because that's when the Lord meets you. The Bible says that God comes near to those who are brokenhearted and he gives wisdom to those who don't have any when they ask in faith. And the message of this study is that no matter how desperate your situation is, the Lord is always gracious and He's always sufficient. And listen, that applies to the, to the worst spiritual condition. If you're here this morning and you're, you're lost and you're desperate and you feel like you've gone too far with your sin for God to ever forgive you, let me tell you, He will meet you at your point of need, and He will pour out His grace on you when you ask, and if you will give your life to Him, He will transform you forever. It also applies to whatever personal issue you have this morning. God has either produced it or He's allowed it. Not because he's mean, not because he's spiteful, but because he wants you to be like Jochebed and to look to him for the solution. Whatever you're dealing with, whatever the difficulty, whatever feelings you have, we want you to know that we will pray for you and we will help you and we will encourage you. And if you, at the end of the service, we're going to have a time where you can come up and just, and just stand before the Lord and, and ask him for help. And I want to encourage you. I want to tell you that right now so you're prepared. Because God wants to meet you at your point of need. Just like you meet Jacob. And look back at, at verse 3. Look at, the, look at the key moment of the whole thing. The key moment is when Jacob lets go of the basket. Up until that point, 
Think about it, how tightly she held that baby, even in the final moments where she knows, I've got to walk down to the river now. He's too old. He's going to be discovered. I've got to do it now. And she's carrying him close. Maybe she nurses him one more time, and she goes down, and she's protecting him, and she's holding him against everything, against life, against Egypt, against fate, against whatever you want to say. She's carrying him. And up until now, she's had him. And now she puts him securely and cozy in the basket. And she discreetly carries him down to the Nile. And she puts the, the basket, do you see it? Right in the edge of the river, right in the weeds. But she's still holding on. How as a parent could you possibly let go? I'm struggling enough with my son leaving for college in three months. This is just a little baby. This is somebody you don't even really know yet, but you know has tremendous potential. Somebody who's helpless, somebody who can't make it on their own, and you've got them all cozy in that basket, but what are you doing? Why are you standing here? How did it come to this? Lord, why did you allow this? And now he's standing there, she's standing there, and she's got the basket, and she's still got a hand on it. But at some point, She finally lets go. That is the moment of faith. And listen, I'm not going to lie to you. Faith can be agonizing and painful. And we may be wondering why we're taking the step of trusting when our heart is hurting and our mind is screaming not to. But as Jacobet found out, there's something more important, something deeply spiritual that happens, listen now, there's something deeply spiritual that happens when we let go. And in that split second, when she lets go of that basket, everything changes. And she watches her son drift away from her grasp like a slow motion movie. And she's watching, though, the plan of God unfold. Because in the moment she let go, there were five important transactions that took place. And every one of these transactions is as essential for us today, for you and for me, as it was for Jacobed. So let's briefly study them. If you're taking notes, write down at the heading, the moment she let go. The moment she let go, and let's quickly develop a couple thoughts here. Number one, the moment she let go, she also had to release her anger, resentment, and control. The moment she let go of that basket, she also had to release her anger, resentment, and control. Now, we've already touched on on the mostly painful and frustrating emotions that she felt. And now those motions have been actualized as that basket floats away. Remember accusation number four last week? You can't solve your problems. Now combine that with accusation number seven. It isn't worth it to serve the Lord. And that's exactly where Jochebed should be in verse three. But she had had to let go of that hostility and that desire to control in order to take her hands off the basket. 
If she was still full of hatred and resentment toward the Egyptians because it was not fair, then she would have been defiant and she would have hidden that baby as long as she could, even out of spite. And if she was holding on to her fear and her guilt, she would have been desperate. She would have been uh, like a wild cat that's cornered, clinging to any hope, holding on to that baby every second, never willing to, to prepare that basket. And let me be very direct this morning. Some of us need to do what Jochebed does here. Because for too long, you've been holding on to something painful. And it's, also, it's almost become like a, like a cathartic security blanket to you. I just keep holding on to my resentment and my lack of forgiveness and my unwillingness to stop worrying and my unwillingness to seek relief from my guilt. And ultimately what you're saying is, God, I'm unwilling to ask you to show me mercy and to change me. But I'm going to tell you today, it's time to let go of it. Some of you are burdened. Some of you are worn down. Some of you can, cannot function in certain ways because you've been so hurt or damaged by something somebody's done to you. And listen, I speak from experience. I've been there. But, but unless we let go of it, if we keep holding on to it and saying, well, I'm like Linus, it's familiar, but it's painful, but it's familiar. And if we keep doing that, we will never feel any release and we'll never experience what God wants to do. So I'm going to tell you right now, there will never be any emotional, physical, or spiritual release until you take your hands off the basket. Number two, when you do that, the second transaction takes place. The moment Jochebed let go, she put it all in the Lord's hands. The illusion of control, gone. The delusion of being able to change the situation, gone. In its place, even though it seems kind of contradictory, as soon as she took off her hands off the basket, someone else took control. And that's exactly where that basket needed to be. It needed to be in God's hands. How many know from experience that there's no greater place to be than when God has control? Oh, when we try to hold on, it's such a mess. And we think, well, I can change the situation. I'll do this and this. I'll work this situation. No, it never, ever works. Because if we're still holding on, it means that we're still holding on. You get what I'm saying? If, if I'm still holding on to it, I'm holding on to it. And that means that the Lord is not working. That means I'm saying, God's not the only one that can solve this. I need to have a part in this. I need to, I need to make sure that, that I feel comfortable with this. Listen, God will never get the glory if we do that. And it's absolutely no coincidence that the name Jochebed means God is glory. She teaches us that when you let go of the basket and when you trust the Lord, that's when God gets glory. But if we keep clinging to it, holding on to it, justifying it, saying, well, I have a right and it's mine and you can't have it, God. When we do that, God's not getting any glory because we're trying to get glory for ourselves. So when it finally gets solved, which it never will, we can say, see, I did it. God hates pride. Now, somebody might say, well, come on, this is just a happy fluke. 
It would have been far better to just keep the baby than to let it go. But, but that wasn't the case because as long as Jochebed had the baby, she was filled with anxiety and fear over the danger that was there. But when she let go, there wasn't a lack of, a lack of hope. There was a new expression of God's provision. Because look what happens. The Spirit of God prompts Pharaoh's daughter, time to take a bath. You need to go down to the Nile. She was one of two people, in my estimation, I could be wrong, but she was one of two people who could change things up. So the Lord brings Pharaoh's daughter to find the baby, and she puts him in the palace after Jochebed takes care of him, and she gives him the finest food and the finest education until the day he will leave and then come back to lead God's people out. But none of that would have happened if Jochebed had held on and didn't trust. Let me ask you, what situation are you facing this morning that you know only God can change in your life? What situation are you facing where the life of somebody that's close to you, only God can solve it. Maybe it's a child, maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a friend. It could be a financial problem, could be a health problem, could be something that's got you scared, or maybe it's chronic sin. Maybe it's a spiritual battle. Listen, whatever it is, now, right now, this very moment, is the time to release that to the Lord and trust Him to provide. Because when we let go of the basket, the Lord then gives us peace and contentment and he increases our faith, and he shows himself sufficient. And that mitigates against our fear and our anxiety. So she puts it in the Lord's hands. Third, the moment she let go, the Lord started to bless her beyond what she could imagine. Oh, I love this one. The moment she let go, the Lord began to bless her beyond what she could imagine. Not only, think about this, not only was the baby safe once the basket went away from her, no crocodiles, no monitors, no snakes, no fish. Not only is the baby safe, and not only is he found by one of only two people who could do something to offset the law, but now, due to Miriam's quick thinking and God's perfect plan, Jochebed not only gets to raise the child and nurse the child, but she gets paid for it. Pharaoh's daughter says, yeah, little girl, you're right. We probably do need a nurse. Why don't you find somebody? And Miriam smiling goes, I know somebody. Mom. And she brings Jochebed to Pharaoh's daughter, and I'm sure Jochebed is trembling, not only with, with a little bit of fear, but with anticipation. Look at how God's working. And Pharaoh's daughter says to her, will you nurse this baby? Sure. Will you take him home and take care of him and, and, and help him to grow up? Sure. Oh, by the way, I'll pay you. You think she goes back home and goes, I am such a clever person. Boy, I really worked that situation. Or do you think she goes home and says, Lord, there it is again. There's, there's how you work. And every day she gets to hold that baby and sing songs of praise to the Lord. And teach him as he becomes a year old and two years old until she finally weans him. 
And she teaches him about God's faithfulness. And every time she holds that baby, and every time she puts that baby to bed at night, she praises the Lord. Lord, you're so faithful, and you're so compassionate, and you're so amazing. Listen, if that doesn't stoke your faith this morning that nothing is impossible, God, I don't know what will. I I really don't. I don't know what will do it. But see, a lot of times, and here's what we need to get out of this. We will not experience that blessing, let alone the fullest extent of that blessing, until we let go. And that's going to seem very counterintuitive to us, and the enemy will tell us that is counterproductive to your happiness. But we need to confidently say to ourselves, God is good, and God is right, and his plan is perfect, and I will trust in him. Every time Jochebed got a paycheck. Don't you think she's laughing? Not only is my baby not dead, but I'm getting paid by Pharaoh's daughter to raise it. Number four. The moment she let go, the Lord's plan for Moses was set into motion. The moment she let go, the Lord's plan for Moses was set into motion. From here, he would go to the palace He would learn about Egypt. He would gain favor. Then Moses would sin. He would severely mess up. He would run to the wilderness. He would learn about herding sheep. Get the metaphor of that. He'd wait on the Lord. He'd be called on by the Lord. And then he would go back to Egypt and he'd tell Pharaoh, who he had grown up with in the palace, time to let my people go. All the Jewish boys were supposed to be killed. So how in the world, in man's planning, would Moses ever get to the palace unless his mother put him in a basket and released him just as the Lord had planned? You know, it is so sobering. Listen carefully now. It is so sobering to think about the plans that the Lord was ready to discharge in our lives if we would have just let go. For the Lord... For, for Moses to lead the people, 80 years later, think about how long that is, 80 years later he would come back. For him to be able to walk into the palace and get an audience with Pharaoh, he had to be known in the palace. He had to have some relationship with Pharaoh to be heard. And he had to be remembered by the people. The Jewish people were skeptical and faithless. He had to be remembered by the Jewish people that he was going to lead out. That's the baby boy that got saved. Remember He's got to have a way in. The people have to say, well, God clearly was faithful to save him. Now he's coming to save us. And he's going to stand out, right? Because he's the only boy of his age. He's the only Jewish man of his age. Moses was surrounded by women. Because every one of his peers was female. But that was just evidence of the firsthand power of faith in the Lord. Faith is all that God wants from you. Listen now. Faith is all God wants from you. He wants our full confidence. He wants our full dependence. He wants our full belief that his way is right. His grace is sufficient. And his provision is absolutely perfect. And faith 
is not based on tangibility. It is not the strongest when we can see it and touch it. It is the strongest and most resilient when we can't. And that's why the last truth is so important. Here's the last truth, and then we're going to respond. The moment she let go, this became a supernatural issue. The moment Jochebed let go, it became a supernatural issue. Now, I know what our tendency is. We're kind of scared of that word. Oh, there it is, supernatural. When something's natural, it just means that we can still have control and, and manage the situation somehow. But when it is supernatural, it means it's the Lord's to do as he will. And you know what? In our humanity, that scares us. So we can say, well, I don't know, that's kind of not in my comfort zone, supernatural, and I'm going to have to trust in something I don't see. And we, can, and we can be messed up by that, or we can find strength, listen now, in the fact that he loves us more than we can imagine, that he proved it through Christ, and now he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. He watches over us like a father. He has mercy new for us every morning. He promises he will faithfully lead us every single moment he has plans for us beyond our imagination and he has storehouses of provision and blessing that he is ready to pour out if we will just trust him or we can say i don't know it's kind of odd it's not what i know all the things that we just said that God has for us. And we're still going to doubt him and try to make it on our own. We're, we're going to hold on to anger and bitterness and fear and anxiety and, and be prayerless and complain like the Jews in the desert. You and I need more supernatural faith. And we need more supernatural actions of faith in our lives. And we need it right now today. Because we're smart as humans, we can manage stuff. We can work the situation and live a fairly comfortable, happy life. But God doesn't say, I want you to work this situation and live a happy, fairly comfortable life. He says, I want you to trust me and I will go beyond your expectations. Steading, holding on to the basket, we're done. And thinking that we're in control, we need an explosion of faith that requires us to let go of the basket and to trust that God will provide.